We hope this explanation of God's Word enriches your life. To help you understand the audience for this talk, we suggest you read the context material on the About Us page. Please read also our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material from philipjensen.com. This talk was recorded at UniChurch on the campus of UNSW, which was attended primarily by undergraduate and postgraduate students who lived on campus or in the suburbs surrounding the university. out some other time. Well now the problem with 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7 is the problem of application. With the problem of application comes the problem of understanding. (coughs) That is this has always been a key and favourite passage for people to talk on the subject of mixed marriages. And mixed marriages have been one of the abiding religious issues and problems of Australian civilization, if that's what you can call such a thing as Australia. For from the beginning of our colony, the chief religious issue of our society, although you won't get this in any history books and you won't actually get it even in histories of religion books in Australia, but believe you me, this is the problem, has been mixed marriages. For from the beginning, unlike any European civilization beforehand, we have lived in a denominationally mixed community. That is, when Europe fought its wars and the Protestants and Catholics killed each other, there was a tendency for states to either wind up as Protestant or Catholic, or at least clearly divided, so the people in that village were Catholic and the people in that village were Protestant. Even today, nations by and large have their major sections that uh, you can see in their religious faction. But Australia has been different from the beginning. You go to any country town, doesn't matter how small the country town is, and you will see your Methodist church, your Presbyterian church, your Baptist church, your Roman Catholic church, your Anglican church, all set up there with later additions like the Salvation Army, the Seventh-day Adventists, the Mormons, and they've all got their own now. A couple of them have merged together, and so you get the Uniting Church, as well as your Wesleyan Methodist church, Congregational church, and Presbyterian church, so we've got four instead of three. But... There are all these different denominations represented even in communities that can be as small as a thousand people. And they're all living cheek by jowl and the wretched thing about all living close to each other like that is you can't keep the children from falling in love with each other. (laughs) Now we tried our desperate best by making sure that Roman Catholics all stayed in Roman Catholic schools and uh, Protestants all went along to state schools and that kind of kept them apart to a certain extent but there was still the milk bar. That gave us the added complexity that we then had people falling in love with Greeks. Now, (laughs) once that happens, you see, we have mixed marriages. And while we can, to a certain extent, laugh about it, it's been no laughing matter, because once you start a mixed marriage, both families have vested interests in winning out the grandchildren, because that's what the fight's going to be about. I'm not going to have my children raised up as Protestants. I'm not going to have my children and grandchildren raised up as Catholics. I mean, I don't mind taking in this kind of suspect person, but provided the children, and the big fight is about the children, indeed there have been in one denomination's tradition, that you actually have to sign pieces of paper saying that you will raise up the children in a particular fashion. This has led to some incredible rows in families. I know of the wedding and of the people involved in a wedding where the, uh, uh, the uncles and uh, father, um, some of the brothers, walked out at the reception and the family split there and then at the reception. After the wedding ceremony but at the reception, uh, one section completely walked out and for some of the people involved they didn't speak to each other again for an, at least 30 years. I'm not sure they ever spoke to to each other again. Why? Well, because the first toast of the reception was to the Pope instead of to the Queen. Now, you can say, well, they're very stupid walking out like that. That's true. I mean, it was obviously uh, fairly... uh, But it was also fairly stupid to be toasting the the Pope before you do the royal toast. I mean, that was just as provocative. It was all aimed that way. 
Now in a good country of uh, you know, Southern Ireland where the number of Protestants are very small, the toast to the Pope goes up first, well that's to be expected and by and large in the Southern Ireland you don't get a toast to the Queen because they haven't got one. So there's no problem in Southern Ireland. But you get a bunch of Irish people living here in uh, Australia and they're living amongst a bunch of Scottish people and uh, that conflict that is over there, well it arouses on the subject of marriage. That's the point at which the conflict really is vicious. And the end solution for most Australians has been don't have anything to do with religion because it only divides families. Neither religion, neither side of the interdenominational conflicts ever won anything for either denomination. The end result was everybody learnt that religion was divisive force within our society, divisive force within our families, and everybody is a lot happier off if you're, a, if you're a pagan. It just is a lot easier all the way around, or at least if you are religious, to keep it on the back burner. Now, the religion, the, the fight was most vigorous between the Masonic Lodge, which actually was uh, the religion of those people who walked out, and, and Catholicism. That was where the, the fight was at its most vigorous level. But it's been there from the very first days in our, in our white settlement of Australia. And it's only been of recent years that it's kind of lessened. But it's only lessened. You can still have the conflict when it comes up to wedding bell time. It's about the only place the conflict occurs now, but you can and will have the conflict at wedding bell time. Now people are used to the idea of mixed marriages, but now we've also given up on taking religion seriously enough to be upset about it. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. It's not about denominational mixed marriages. It's about being married with a Christian and a non-Christian. Now, of course, if you have a particular view of Presbyterians that they cannot be possibly Christians, or if you have the particular view that only Presbyterians can be Christians, then you'll see why you think verse 14 is about you, who are now a Presbyterian or about to marry one. It then becomes relevant. But if you think Christianity is wider than the European denominations that we have inherited, well, then you'll start to see that this is not about mixed marriages in the Australian conflict situation of denominationalism, but mixed marriages between Christians and non-Christians. But is it? Is that what Paul is writing about in this chapter? Is he concerned that Corinthians are marrying non-Christians? And so he is writing to them not to be yoked together with unbelievers. I don't think so. There is no mention of marriage in this chapter or in this context. So why would you think it was about that? I mean, he writes to the Corinthians about marriage in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, a 40-verse chapter on marriage. Marriage is not being discussed here explicitly. Is it being implied? Because it is frequently applied to marriage. Mind you, verse 17 is frequently applied to church and to the purity of the church. It's a favourite text for those who want a pure church. We must separate ourselves. And so the separatist movements, the holiness movements that you find within Christianity, many of those which in the end become fairly cultish because of the character of staying separate from the rest of the world, love, what 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, therefore come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Over and again, as people look at a denomination such as the one that I'm a member of, namely Anglicanism and the Anglican Church, and see its appalling paganism, its lack of Christian understanding, its money-grubbing greed and all these other things, they say, how can you be a Christian and an Anglican? That seems a contradiction in terms. If you're going to be a Christian, you must pursue holiness. If you're going to pursue holiness, you must be uncontaminated by unholy people such as Anglicans. Why don't you come out from amongst them and from their pagan practices which, which they perpetuate their real estate company? Is that what Paul is writing about here? Is he writing about the purity of the church? Not about marriage, but about the purity of the church. 
or is it something different? Is he calling upon Christians to come out from the impure church or is he calling upon Christians to come out from the impure world? Is that what he wants us to separate ourselves from? To have nothing to do with the contamination of body and spirit as we seek the perfection of holiness but we no longer get involved with the ways of this world. We leave its culture and its paganism. And so it's not so much you Christian leaving your impure church, but you Christians, you church, you Christian church leaving the impure world which is contaminating to you. And so we mustn't be watching picture shows or television shows or, 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 or listening to, uh, to, to heavy rock music of any kind. Or We've got to leave these things behind. We've got to purify ourselves from dancing and from... And there's a whole section then of Christian teaching which has been about worldliness, that we must flee. This is a passage that is used to, to apply to our worldliness. But also there are others who have taken it in terms of freeing ourselves from the world in terms of not being involved with the government, not fighting their fights, not paying their taxes, not paying any attention to their laws either. But we as Christians must live a separatist life. You see it uh, in some of the Mennonite movements of the Anabaptist movements of the 16th century have this kind of element that the pagan world rulers rule the world and we Christians are a community within who aren't really obliged to be involved in it. Those of you who have seen that movie, Witness, right? well, you haven't come out from the impure yet. Those of you who have seen that, it's about the Hamish people who would see again. They have come out. They are living a separate life from the life of the world. They dress separately to the way the world dresses. They travel in cars separately. They even put up barns separately. They do it to ballet music. Now... How do we apply this passage? Is it any of those applications? All of those applications? What, what, is, what is Paul about? So the first question we've got to settle is, what is the meaning of this passage? Now, there is a simple meaning to it, just a straightforward meaning. You should pick it up in verse 14. Don't be yoked together with unbelievers. With a series of appeals to the Corinthians to not be in fellowship, in harmony, in agreement, don't to be associated, not be in partnership with unbelievers. That's what's appealing. What kind of partnership with the unbelievers they had, we're not yet worked out. But we're not to be in partnership with them. I mean, that may mean business partnership, mightn't it? That, that you shouldn't enter into a business partnership, uh, join a practice of lawyers or accountants if they're, if they're non-Christians. You'd only work with some Christians. Certainly he pushes it in chapter 7 verse 1 as anything that contaminates body and spirit. We're not to be closed in on those things. We've got to be free. And so it's an appeal to us to separate ourselves in some fashion. And to do that he uses two arguments. First argument is inconsistency with this series of rhetorical questions. What have we got in common? What uh, what uh, do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Verse 14. Fellowship, what fellowship can light and have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and the devil? Belial is one of his names, nicknames. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of the idols, uh, the temple and the idols? Well, see, it's a series of rhetorical questions. I mean, you've got to keep saying there's nothing in common. No, they're completely different. They're separate. They're, they're quite different to each other. Oil and water, chalk and cheese. They're, they're quite different kinds of things we're talking about. That's the first line of argument. It's a rhetorical set. The second line of argument is scripture with not so much uh, direct quotations as allusions to a whole set of scriptures. Firstly the one of uh, verse 16b, I will be their, uh, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people, which comes up many times in the scriptures. This is the claim of the people of God, that God has made them his people. So you'll find it in Leviticus, you'll find it in Jeremiah, you'll find it in Ezekiel, and you'll find it in your footnotes down the bottom of your page. As the people of God, they are also the temple of God. And so they are to be holy the idea of holy means separate, distinctive, set apart. 
And the temple of God is not to be used for any other purposes than God's purposes. And we are the temple of God and therefore we must be set aside for God. And you get references like Isaiah 52 uh, verse 11 about the temple being holy and therefore come out from them and be separate says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. Because our holiness is that of the family of God. And there's no exact quote of verse 18 that he's quoting from the Old Testament. But you'll find this kind of idea in 2 Samuel 7, in Jeremiah 31, 9, in Isaiah 43, 6, which are not in your footnotes. Where God is the father of the people of Israel. We are the temple of God. We are the family of God. And as the temple of God and the family of God, we must be holy. We must be distinctive. We must not be like the world around about us, the pagan around about us, the unbeliever anyway. We mustn't be like the unbeliever. So the conclusion is, as the temple of God and the family of God, we should purify ourselves. We should be seeking to perfect our holiness. And perfecting our holiness, we've got to leave aside everything that contaminates us. But what is the everything that contaminates us? What is it that he imagines we must be leaving behind? What is it about the unbeliever that we can't really be associated? What was in his mind here as he's understanding what we've got to separate ourselves from? See, to say being a Christian, I've got to be distinctive, begs a very important question, doesn't it? In what way have I got to be distinctive? What about me must be different? Or, let me put it this way, different from what? Different to what? I mean, it's one thing to be different, but to be different means there's something else out there, doesn't it, that I'm different from. Now, what is it that he wants us to be different from? I must be distinctive in my hairstyle. I must be distinctive in my shoes. I must be distinctive in cleaning my teeth left-handedly. I must be... What, in what way am I to be different? And you're only different cleaning your teeth left-handedly if everybody else cleans it right-handedly, or at least that other mob. But who are the other mob? And what point am I to be different from them? It's an appeal to be different, isn't it? You're, you are God's people. Be different to the unbelievers. In what way? Well, how to work that out is in threefold step, three steps are going to take. The first step is to say, well, what does the rest of the Apostle Paul say? Now, this could take the rest of the night, so I won't take the rest of the night on it. But as you go through Paul, you'll find out what he didn't mean and what he did mean. Then we can start looking at, well, the context. What's he talking about in this context? And then we might be able to come to understand what he actually does mean and then we'll be able to get to what the application is. So what does Paul tell us? Well, I know some of the things he does not mean because elsewhere he tells us that we're not to be different. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 to 11, he tells us that we are not to separate ourselves from unbelievers if they're sinful. It's interesting, isn't it? 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 to 11. I have written to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Ah, now see, sounds like the same subject we're on. Right? Don't associate with, well here it's sexually immoral people not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters in that case you would have to leave the world I'm writing that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral, greedy or an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler so such a man don't even eat now what he's saying then is the immorality of the unbelievers is what you should expect and if you are taking me to mean you're not to associate, you're not to be linked in with unbelievers who are immoral, well then you would actually have to leave the world. You have to get on the next space shuttle that you can get to. Because everybody's like that. But I am saying that you're not to associate with Christians who are sexually immoral or greedy or covetous, etc. Then we should be withdrawing from them. So that helps, that kind of passage can help us understanding what Paul is likely to mean in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, isn't it? And likewise, in Galatians chapter 2, you find he eats food with the Gentiles. 
So it's not separate yourself from Gentiles, nor separate yourself from their meal tables. You're not even to eat with a Christian who is acting in an ungodly fashion, but you certainly should and can eat with a non-Christian, even though he is acting in an ungodly fashion. Uh, the food laws, which were the great distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles, the Pharisaic Jews and the Gentiles, that's not the point of separation now. There's great conflict for Paul and Peter and Barnabas over this very issue, isn't there? Because Peter wants to eat with the Gentiles, but as soon as the Jews come along, he withdraws himself and says, oh, no, it's not right for me to eat with the Gentiles. He was the one who had the vision about the animals coming down, so God was trying to show him that there's nothing wrong with the food and there's nothing wrong with eating with Gentiles. And Paul had to rebuke him in Galatians chapter 2, you'll find it. What about marriage? Should we as Christians withdraw from marriage? No, he's not talking about that. Because in 1 Corinthians 7 he's told us it's alright to get married. Should we withdraw if our married partner is an unbeliever? See, I shouldn't be mismated with unbelievers. Now what happens if I get converted uh, some years after I'm married? My wife doesn't get converted, so I'm now married to an unbeliever. Does that mean I should withdraw from her? Well, friends, it's a real question, you see, because there are many people who get converted after they're married and their partner doesn't get converted. And the marriage comes under tremendous strain and pressure. And this kind of passage sounds as if it's saying we shouldn't be there you see we we shouldn't be yoked together but more than that verse 17 come out from them and be separate now in 1 corinthians chapter 7 verses 12 to 14 paul says we shouldn't leave our partner if our unbelieving partner wants to leave us that's their problem and if that's the case let them go but we should not initiate separation just because they're unbelievers and we're believers he does not mean that now, you see what I mean? We could spend a long time, couldn't we, going through all the passages of Paul, finding out what he doesn't mean. Likewise, we could spend a long time going through what all the passages, finding out what he could mean. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, he says, he picks up the Corinthians who have started to take each other to court. And he says, you shouldn't do that, because the people who are judging you are unbelievers. You should separate yourself from court cases before unbelievers when the court case is between believers 1 Corinthians 6 verses 1 to 8 let me try and illustrate this one for you that's quickly Paul and I have a fracker between each other he bashes my car and so I now want to sue him to get the money back from him being Christian brothers we should not take our court case to an unbeliever to judge us for we are the ones who are going to rule the universe and we are the ones who are supposed to be united in love what testimony to the unbelieving judge to see the, the brothers who love each other at each other's throats Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 far better to be wronged far better for me to put up with the fact that he's ripped me off yet again <laughs> than to take him to court now that is quite different of course if it's not a Christian brother that is if a non-Christian bashes into my car that I take a non-Christian to court in front of a non-Christian judge is a completely different issue that is the non-Christian shouldn't be judging believers but non-Christians can judge citizens so there is a point at which Paul is saying we have to withdraw from society we have to of course that created tremendous problems in the history of Western civilization when the whole community becomes Christian right? except for one or two people then all the judges become Christians then churches run their own courts during a period of time it's a very messy business but that's another story we'll get on tonight what about marriage? well in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 39 Paul speaks to widows and he says it's good for them to marry again but only in the Lord the widow is not free to marry unbelievers. She is only free to marry a believer. There is a separation. There is, an, there is something he could be meaning that in verse 14, couldn't he? Or again, in eating in idol worship, 
in 1 Corinthians 10, 14 to 22, 1 Corinthians 10, 14 to 22, while he has said in this long discussion that the meat is the meat and it doesn't matter which idol it's been offered to, it's still just a lump of meat and if you like eating meat, eat it and if you don't like eating meat, well, we're sorry for you. While he is still just talking in terms of it's, it's neither here nor there, he also says it's wrong to go into the idol temple and involve yourself in the idol worship and the idol offering up and the idol barbecue because that's where they had their barbecues in those days, inside idol worship. So it's all right to eat the meat because the meat is just the meat, but it's not all right to be involved in idolatry. You must withdraw from that. You must be distinctive from that. Indeed, he goes on to say, flee idolatry in 1 Corinthians 10, 14. As he says, flee sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians 6, 18. As he says, on the subject of of evil, you should be infants in 1 Corinthians 14. Well, so it goes on. You could, we could spend a long study now going through all of the times where Paul says, be different, and all of the times where he's saying, you don't have to be different. And it'll take us a long, long time. So let's go to this context itself, recognising there's that backdrop of what we know about Paul generally. Now in 2 Corinthians 5 and 6, Paul has been talking about his ministry. The ministry was given to him from God. Verse 19 of 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 5:19. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making His appeal through us, and we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He has this God-given ministry of reconciling people to God. And chapter 6, verse 1, as God's fellow workers. He's appealing to them not to receive the grace of God in vain. Now is the time of opportunity. Now is the time of salvation. But then in chapter 6, verse 3, he seems to change the subject. The NIV thinks so because it sticks a new heading in called Paul's Hardships, but that may or may not be the subject. As you read about it, it's more than just hardships. It's got to do also with their acceptance of him in this section. Uh, Remember, friends, there are no paragraphs in the original Greek And there are none of these headings over the tops of paragraphs. Sometimes the headings are helpful to us, but don't get locked into them as if the bloke who made the heading has got it right. Because that's true, it is about Paul's hardships, but it's about more than Paul's hardships. But if you just read the heading and don't read the passage very carefully, you think the passage is just about his hardships. But it's also about their acceptance. Verse 11 comes in the same section, you see. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We're not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak to you as children, my children. Open wide your hearts also. You see, here are people who have experienced this ministry of this apostle. And the ministry is about hardship, rejection, but it's also about strength. It's also about how God has looked after them. It's also about how he has ministered, both in the difficulties and the rejections and also in the resurrection. And then in chapter 6, verse 14, he seems to change the subject again. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. And you get this little section about unbelievers and yoking and temple of the Holy Spirit and the temple and the... how can we be the temple of the living God and also be associated with idols and so on? And then in chapter 7, verse 2, he seems to change the subject again. This time about accepting them. Make room for us in your hearts. We've wronged no one, we've corrupted no one, we've exploited no one. Indeed, when you start to sort it out, you'll notice that you can jump from chapter 6, verse 13 to chapter 7, verse 2 without noticing that you've left a paragraph out. Let me read to you. I'm picking up verse 11. That is how it just flows on, as if nothing else has been put there. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts also. Make room for us in your hearts. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I've said... You see, you wouldn't have noticed that you've left a whole paragraph, a whole section out, would you? 
It just flows straight on. In fact, so much is this verse 14 to chapter 7, verse 1 kind of dropped in, but quite a few commentators think that that's exactly what's happened, has been dropped in. It's not part of the original at all. That uh, some later person has put it in. Or Paul had a little bit left over and shoved it in here. <laughs> now the problem with that theory, and there's a fairly basic problem with that theory, is that all the texts that we have have it there. We don't have any textual evidence that has been dropped in. And so rather than assuming that someone has clumsily scissors and pasted the thing in the wrong place, let's see if we can work out whether the context isn't giving us the clue as to what this little section is about and whether this little section doesn't help us understand the context. So what's the argument of the passage? It's all about Paul's acceptance by the Corinthians. Paul is humanly unacceptable, verses 3 to 13. I mean, we've put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, verse 4, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Great endurance, troubles, hardships, distresses, beatings, imprisonments, riots, hard work, sleepless nights, hunger. It doesn't sound like he's accepted by anybody, does it? We, we've tried not to be offensive to anyone, verse 3, and yet the whole of our life has been filled with rejections. But what have we've sought is purity, understanding, patience, kindness in the Holy Spirit, in sincere love, in truthful speech, in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the, to the right hand and the left, through glory and dishonour, bad report, good report, genuine, regarded as impostors. The whole section is talking... It's not just about Paul's hardships. See, it's a misleading catting, that one, isn't it? It's about how humanly unacceptable he is and what the battle of Christian ministry is and what the joys are and how it's both good report and bad report that we are working in. But you Corinthians, he winds up this little section, we want you to be accepting of us. And indeed, as your father in the gospel, so to speak, we should expect you to be accepting us. We've opened our hearts to you. We've given freely of everything to you and we expect you to give freely back to us in your acceptance of us. Paul comes bearing a gospel of dying and rising and of reconciliation. And he wishes them to see in his life death and resurrection and he wishes to be reconciled by the cross. But to understand this chapter 6, look at the wider chapter, the wider context. For in 2 Corinthians, Paul is facing opposition. The Corinthian church has accepted other teachers as well as Paul, in Paul's absence. And Paul has been arguing throughout about the nature of his own ministry in the light of these new teachers, these new apostles that have come in. Come across to chapter 11 and you'll see where the rubber hits the road a bit in Paul's own application section, chapter 11. Let me read from verse 1 to pick it up. Ready? 2 Corinthians 11, 1. I hope you'll put up with a little of my foolishness, but you're already doing that. That's a favourite verse for most preachers. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For... If someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. But I do not think I am in the least inferior to those super apostles. Now, I may not be a trained speaker, but I do have knowledge, and we made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Drop down to verse 12. And I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ, and no wonder for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. And it's not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness, and their end will be what their actions deserve. 
What's happening in Corinth is that these apostles have come in who are actually the angels of evil. They are masquerading as apostles and they are rivaling Paul and they are teaching a different gospel with a different Jesus, with a different spirit and the Corinthian church is being sucked in. They're being seduced by them. And so Paul is writing about their acceptance of him and also the fact that they shouldn't be accepting them. That's the big burning issue that the epistle is written about. And he is worried about the fact that it's not that they're going to accept him and reject them. He's worried they're going to reject him and accept them. But by chapter 7, the message from Titus has come that the Corinthians do still love him. Come with me to chapter 7. Verse 5. For when we came into Macedonia, that's northern Greece, unless you're a Macedonian and then it's Macedonia, so please excuse me for calling it Greece. When we came into Macedonia, which Corinth is in southern Greece, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the comfort, the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Okay, so he knows he's not going to be rejected by them. He's not being rejected by them, he's being accepted by them. That's what he knows. But they're accepting the false apostles as well. They're not going to reject Paul and accept the false prophets. What they're going to do is accept Paul and accept the false apostles. They're going to have both sets of apostles, both the true and the false, together. And so the letter is a letter in which he commends himself Christianly in a very funny way, that is by showing that he is like Jesus, one who suffers all the time for other people's salvation. So he's not a super apostle, he's not one of the great eloquent preachers, he is the real apostle, the one who gets bashed up every time he starts talking. Now, that's the real sign of the apostle. So he's going he's to promote himself and commend himself to them Christianly, but as a servant of the gospel of the cross and the resurrection, and appeal to them to accept God's grace, to accept the gospel and the gospel bearer truthfully. And to accept them truthfully means to reject the false apostles. You can't accept the truth and accept the lie at the same time. The only way you can accept the truth is by rejecting the lie. They have got the gospel, but they want plus. And so he's actually having to lop off the plus in 2 Corinthians and say, no, no, if you add anything to the gospel, you've no longer got the gospel. You add any of these other apostles onto my apostleship, you've no longer got me either. You want me, I'm glad you want me, I want you, open your hearts, accept me, but if you're going to accept me, they've got to go. He is appealing to be the true apostle and appealing to them to accept him in love, the kind of love he has for them. And therefore, to stop mixing true and false apostles and gospels. That's the context, and that therefore is the meaning of the passage we have before us. Because we have the, the promise, the reality, because we are God's temple and God's family, don't play around with alternatives, with alternative Jesuses, with alternative gospels, with alternative apostles. Therefore, don't play around with anything that will contaminate your holiness. This little section is a key part of his argument. He has said, I am this kind of apostle, the kind that gets bashed up and yet goes on in holiness. And I want you to accept me. And I don't want you to be yoked with them. Because you are the church of God, you are the temple of God, you are the people of God, therefore you're going to be separate. You're going to be distinctive. Therefore, accept me. To leave that little section out, verses 14 to chapter 7, verse 1, really gives you a problem because he's appealing for them to accept him and then he says, by the way, Titus tells me you have accepted me. And you think, well, why is he going on about it? And on and on about it. Well, it's because they have accepted him on their terms. 
and their terms are to keep the false teachers as well. And he's saying, you can't do that, friends. You cannot be unequally yoked. So the partnership, the relationship that we're talking of here is believer and unbeliever in the household of God. Okay then, how do we apply it today, the 20th century? Take the limited application first so that you get the meaning accurately. Not so as we can cut the word of God down to its minimum, but so that we make sure we're getting it right. So I want to talk about primary application and wider application. In case you're running out of yellow page. Although I whipped through Paul's meaning so quickly, you've got blank paper there, haven't you? Primary application. The primary application of this passage has got to do with the Christian gospel and church associations. It's got to do with unbelievers in your congregation. It's got to do with unbelieving teachers. It's got to do with unbelievers working with you in a gospel ministry, on your beach mission team, on your scripture union camp, on your crusader camp, or on your your cell group or your faculty group or your whatever it may be that you cannot continue to accept false shepherds you cannot continue to work with preachers of false gospel now Christians keep on making this mistake of thinking that a little bit of error is actually tolerable we are always all in error to some extent But whenever we find out what error we're in, we must repent of it and change immediately. Because error is not tolerable if you are worshipping the God who is truth. When you worship God, you must worship him in spirit and in truth. The great crime is lies. You see the essence of the devil? The power of the devil? Lies. He is the liar and the father of lies. The essence of God is truth. We cannot tolerate false teachers. If you want to destroy a a church, the easiest way to do it is false teaching. Any church, any congregation. So when you leave university, you set up a Bible study in your place of work. I hope you do. May there be Bible studies in every place of work all over the world as you travel around. And what you do is you find Christians. Your first thing, the first port of call, go find fellow believers. So that as a group of fellow believers, you can set up a Bible study to which you can then start inviting unbelievers to come and hear the word of God. But the group who runs that Bible study, the group who teaches that Bible study, the group who is in control of that Bible study, must be Bible-believing Christians. Even at this point you say, well look, there's a bloke on the third floor and he's really, he's a very nice bloke and he's a church attender and he doesn't really believe exactly what we believe but he's got a lot of kind of God consciousness about him and spirituality and, and I mean, he's a Trinitarian, he believes that much and, uh, and most of the New Testament, some of the Old Testament he thinks is really crummy. I say, well, when we do some evangelism he'll be a good person to bring along. But when we're having someone to teach the Bible with us, he is a totally inappropriate person because he doesn't believe the truth of the Bible. And you cannot work with him and you certainly cannot, you certainly cannot put him up as a leader of your group, as someone who's going to teach the others. That is, a, that is someone that you cannot be yoked with, you cannot work with. Never works. But surely down the track the group will fall apart over that division. You'll see it in Christian fellowships, ICFs in school, inter-school Christian fellowship, or Crusader Union in in schools, or the Christian unions or evangelical unions, Christian fellowships in tertiary education establishments, or in some of our colleges here. They very importantly have established principles of who can teach and lead. So, for example, you take the Evangelical Union at the University of Sydney. Anybody can be a member who acknowledges Jesus as Lord. But to be a committee member, or to be a leader of a faculty or a cell group, or to be a speaker at their public meeting, you have to sign a ten-point doctrinal statement. You don't have to sign that in order to be a member, but you certainly have to sign it in order to be a shepherd, in order to be a leader. 
That's the character of it. It's much the same within our own congregational life here. That to be a member of our church here requires you to do no more than sign a paper which says, which a form, if you've never seen the form, do ask one of the staff members about it and we're more than happy to share the form with you, which says that you believe that Jesus, in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour and you want to be a member of the congregation. They're the only conditions. Right? On that condition you can come in as membership and that's no trouble. But if you want to exercise leadership within the congregation, we don't have a formalised slip where we ask our prayer and Bible group leaders to sign a doctrinal basics, etc. But we do work very hard to make sure that they do believe and understand the word of God and they are committed to its teaching and they will not be leading people astray. But friends, it goes right down the track, down to Sunday school teachers. I was associated with the church a little while back uh, loosely associated I mean it wasn't uh, my direct responsibility but the, the, the minister of that church had gone around the community and found people of goodwill who were willing to teach the Sunday school the fact that none of them actually were converted didn't seem to him to be an important matter he just had Sunday school children attending and he wanted to get someone to take the Sunday school classes and so he was You cannot be unequally yoked like that. That's what this is about. That's what this passage is about. And there are many, many applications to this passage. It's why, of course, the ecumenical movement and activities fail completely. It's why when people come to this campus, they often pick up and say, well, look, there's these different groups on the campus. Why can't we all just work together? The answer is because we don't believe the same gospel, friends. That's why we don't work together. If we believe the same thing, we'd be happily working together. But when you actually scratch us deep down you'll find out we actually believe quite different gospels and any unity that might be expressed will be a phony unity it'll be wallpapering over cracks that are very deep and profound now let me pick up on a wider application oh, by the way there is a lovely book which we used to sell I'm going to get killed for sell advertising this book because I think it's out of print is it called, uh, I'm looking hopefully to see where someone can tell me, called Student uh, Witness and Christian Truth or Christian Witness and Student Truth. <laughs> Something like that, right? Brown cover. It takes you a, a good five years to work out what the uh, artwork means uh, on the front. It has got a meaning. It just is very obscure. Um, but it's a marvellous book. And if it's not there please put orders in so we can send it back to the publisher so they'll start printing it again because it's one of the best books on a very limited subject. All right, what about the wider applications? Well, it has many, friends, many. Inasmuch as marriage brings you into the household of God, into the church, and 1 Timothy 3 parallels the church to marriage, inasmuch as marriage is like the household of God, it is inappropriate for Christians to enter into a partnership of marriage with unbelievers. Now, 1 Timothy 3 tells us that the household of God is like the household that we live in. The church is a family and a Christian family. It's the family of families, if you like. When you're setting up your own personal family, I hope and trust you're setting up a Christian family. Well, you can't do that with unbelievers. That's not on. That's not possible. And, just to put myself right out in the limb to be chopped out later, especially for women, it seems to me part of the primary rather than the wider application. For the role and responsibility of your husbands is to so love you with the gospel as to present you mature in Christ at the last day. That is what the, that is what the wife's husband is to do how can you marry an unbeliever for what unbeliever is going to so love you with the gospel as to present you mature with Christ in the last day very weird unbeliever <laughs> I may say there's a good chance that if you find him and he really is like that that he'll get converted <laughs> very weird it doesn't happen and fellows, how can you be presenting your wife mature on the last day when you haven't even seen her converted? I'm sure the application as a secondary application is quite right, although it's not what Paul is saying in his primary meaning. 
but it can be generalized to other things too. For the language of chapter 7 verse 1 talks about everything that contaminates. So whatever partnership, whatever working relationship you enter into that is going to compromise you is a partnership or working relationship that you need to avoid. Now I think that does have implications in your business practices. I don't think it is a particular problem very often in a very large company which is governed by company rules where you have 150 partners. But when you're in a partnership where there are just two partners, I think it can give Christians great difficulties because you must bear with the morality and the immorality of your partner. And it's actually easier in Australia to get a divorce from your marriage partner than it is from your business partner. You need to weigh it up. Because the real division between mankind is the division between believer and unbeliever. Look back to chapter 5, verse 16, 17. From now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way. We do so no longer. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. The real division between people is not Jew and Gentile, it's not Chinese, African, Australian, it's not even within nationalities, it's not language groups, the Mandarins and the Cantonese or something like that. The real difference between people are those in Christ and those out of Christ. And so the person you're not to be yoked with is the unbeliever in these kinds of relationships which in any way will impair your perfecting holiness. But that doesn't mean that you then have to push yourself out into isolationism so that you get out of the world because I cannot have anything to do with any unbeliever anywhere. I must become like the Jew to reach the Jew, like the, like the, uh, the Gentile to reach the Gentile. I've got to become all things to all men so that I may save some. I've got to continue to be in this world. But while I'm in this world, I must not be in partnership with the world. I mustn't be in partnership with them. But you see how once you take it in a secondary wider meaning, the argument starts to give you more and more problems in application. So the primary application of within our own church is a very important one. Okay, question time tonight, or comment time. Your turn, go. you're in a pastoral role as a minister you go to a church and you find the elders there um, some of them are not Christian what happens then? What do you do? You go to a church where the elders of a uh, as a pastor of a church and you find some of the elders of the church are not Christian what do you do? That's not, an, that's not an abstract uh, and theoretical question, it's all too practical. I've got one friend who went to a country town and found that uh, there was not one Christian amongst the whole eldership, uh, which is not altogether surprising because he didn't find a Christian in the whole congregation. Um, had to travel 30 miles to the next town to be able to find any Christian fellowship. Well, what you've got in his case is simpler, of course. What you've got is not a church. What you've got is an evangelistic meeting. And you've just got to view it as that. But when you're in the context where the church has got many Christians but there are some non-Christians in the eldership, then I think you do have to deal with that up front, especially in the Presbyterian kind of context where Presbyterian eldership has considerable, um, considerable power and authority and ministry attached to it. And one of the things you've got to do is try and minister to those non-Christian elders quickly, both in terms of bringing them the gospel, because you don't want to exclude people. I mean, they're often good-hearted people, you know, the, the apex Rotarian type of man who is happy to act as the treasurer in the local church as part of his bank managing responsibilities. Um, and you don't want to exclude these people who, out of goodwill, have been tolerated by the church in totally wrong jobs. It's the church's fault, not their fault. So we mustn't punish them. We must seek to save them. And so they are the very first people I would seek to evangelise. But in my seeking to evangelise them, I would also be holding all kinds of uh, questions of government that the church was making in as much abeyance as I could. So I'd try and avoid that body of elders making any decisions for a year or two until we'd made the position clear. 
which is very difficult. Right? But in most churches, it's not too difficult because they never do anything anyway. But, you know, they want the new minister to make all these changes. And I keep on saying, no, no, let's hold off for a while. Let's work out some things first. And what I'd work out is in personal work with them to seek to evangelise them. And as the year wore on and the gospel became clear to them, I would be trying to get them to see how inappropriate it is for them to be in the position in the church they're in and how, by apologising to them, to see why the church has made a mistake in putting them in the position they're in and, and in never criticise them for doing it but apologise like mad that the Christians have, have actually done such a, such a dreadful thing as to put them in such a position. And it must be embarrassing for you to have to stand up and, and take leadership on subjects that you don't know anything about and that you don't agree with and don't believe. The first point is evangelising. A friend of mine went into a church, wasn't quite that bad, but it was a little bit that bad that way, and he said his first year he did nothing but run the public services and meet with all the elders every week. He had a half-hour Bible study with each elder in the church. It was an Anglican church, so he did, it was each parish councillor. And so he, he would go around to each of the parish councillors. He did nothing else for the year, really, but take these half-hour Bible studies weekly with them. By the end of the year, all the parish councillors had been converted. Then the second year, he started actually organising what the church was about with this group of people who had been converted. But if the eldership's all kaput, the church is a church, is kaput. So you've got to do something about it. Can't just let it ride on. Yep. How do we recognise whether the minister's gone off the rails or not? You must listen with discernment. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 talks about Listening to prophecy with discernment. You must not believe what I say. Very important. You must not believe me, you must believe the word of God. Inasmuch as what I say is what the word of God is saying, believe it. Inasmuch as what I'm saying is not what the word of God is saying, correct me. Because that's being unkind to let me go on in error, isn't it? And so you've got to sit there and listen with discernment. And you must play your part in sermons. Because the majority of the work in any sermon is done between the ears of the listener. That's where it's done. I mean, we could play a tape of me and have someone mime me at the front. My side of this work is over and done when I finish the preparation, the standing up, giving bit. That's the easy bit. Especially you've got the gift of the gab. That's simple. The listening is the hard bit. Now, if you haven't read the passage before you come to church, your capacity for discernment has already been seriously undermined because you are trying to take on board what the passage is saying while at the same time taking on board what I'm saying while at the same time seeing if those two things are the same. Now, you could be that clever, Gunga Din, but I guess you're not. Read the passage before you come. I won't ask you to have a show of hands tonight as to who read the passage before they came, but next week... Now, <laughs> on the back of your outline, you'll notice preparation questions. They're not just there idly because we've got spare ink. We do want our members to be in preparation of what 2 Corinthians 7 is about. Beware of these questions, because they could be the wrong questions, couldn't they? And we could be programming you to misunderstand the passage, couldn't we? So you might be better at making up your own questions. That's alright. But some people find that hard. Here are some preparation questions for you to do. Read through it beforehand. When you've finished, when I've finished, listen to the question time that we have like this. Don't just accept it. Query it. Say, how do you know this? What makes you think that? I'm more than happy. It doesn't worry me that you don't. And if you find that I've made a mistake, praise God, that's brilliant. I'm liberated from an error. I'm happy. It never worries me to be found out to be wrong. 
does worry me when people go around saying, well, Philip said, as if there's a kind of 67th book up here, what Philip said. <laughs> it would be a very big book. <laughs> That's the one that makes me unhappy. Because if Philip said it and it's what's in the Bible, then say, the Bible says. And if what Philip says is not in the Bible, what on earth do you remember it for? Let alone quote it. That's the silly thing. Then when we finished, talk about it. We have tea and coffee here. And when you have tea and coffee, you've got to do small chit-chat, haven't you? You've got to talk about nothingness. It's very important in life that Christians aren't always serious and only ever talking about the big issues of life. We have to discuss the football and, and whether Balmain, having snuck into the fifth spot, can still win, you know? And, and the important issues of life, like whether the roosters will ever be resuscitated and so on. We've got to talk about that kind of stuff. But learn the art on a Friday night to also talk about the sermon. We've just invested an enormous amount of time in this sermon, you and I, together, haven't we? What's the point of investing a lot of time and not getting the full return from your investment? What point has grabbed you tonight? What is a new thought that you haven't had before? What is an application that you haven't thought of before? What is a point of trouble in your own life that you know that this passage is speaking to? Share it with another friend so that together you can help each other in the evaluation and understanding of the Word of God. And then likewise in your prayer and Bible groups. Work at it. So there is, no, there is no official word. This is what these scriptures mean and if your minister says this then he is selling the truth. All there is is the scriptures and your responsibility to make sure you listen accurately to the scriptures and judge everything by the scriptures. Am I telling you the truth? Find out from the scriptures. And if you find the minister is not teaching you the scriptures, and when you go and say to him, hang on, that's not what the Bible is saying, he in the bottom line says, well, I really don't care what the Bible says, this is what, then you know you need to change church. Don't stay another day, leave. Man, he's not going to believe what the Bible says. Well, he don't, they usually don't say, I don't believe the Bible. They usually say, well, look, when you've had as much theological education as I... If you know the original languages and have really studied thoroughly Moabite literature, you would know that. <laughs> They're saying, I don't believe the Bible. We all have different points, different understandings of different topics. So what point do you draw the line where you can understand whether you can work with a person or not? That's why we've got to get this book in print. The... <laughs> Truth Witnesses Christian Students or whatever it is. Huh? You've got to get that book back in print because it actually addresses exactly that issue. That is, where you draw the line is where the Bible draws the line. And he analyses where the Bible draws not just the line but a series of lines. That is, you and I may disagree about certain things in the bar, certain things because the Bible disagrees with it. You see, you may count one day more important than another. You may count every day exactly the same. Now, is that a point at which we should draw the line? No, because which part of the Bible tells us not to? Romans 14. Romans 14 says, let's accept each other on that issue. That's not the issue to draw the line on. Right? You might want to worship. You might want to follow Sabbath laws. You may not want to follow Sabbath laws. Should we divide on that? No, no. Colossians chapter 2 tells us that's not the point to divide on. You might want to see that Jesus Christ is just a man. You want to see that Jesus Christ is God. Is that a point we should divide the line on? Yeah. 1 John 4 says that's where we should divide the line. So within Christianity there's those areas in which disagreement is not only permitted but expected. And there are those areas where there is absolutely no tolerance at all. But the Bible itself makes clear which of those it is. The brief answer is you've got to believe in the divinity of Jesus Christ, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. You've got to believe in justification by faith alone and you've got to believe in the authority of the, of the apostolic scriptures. I get those from Galatians 1 and 2 and from 1 John 4, 1 to 6. They're the basic ones. 
but there are others that you really you can't tolerate. You can't you can't tolerate in errors. One John four one to six, Galatians one Galatians two. Paul and Barnabas ended up parting company over a disagreement about who they should work with and why. What relation is that got? Ah, thank you, brother. That's another very helpful point. See, this is why I like question time because we put all kinds of corrections into what's being said. Paul and Barnabas disagreed, and they, shit, they split company with each other. How does that fit into this? They don't split company over a theological issue, as far as we can tell in the scriptures. They split company over a personal disagreement over the subject of uh, Barnabas's nephew, John Mark. That is, we may choose not to be fellow workers for other than gospel reasons. You don't always get on with every person, even every other Christian, do you? And maybe that we have a different vision, a different goal to do. So there might be a Presbyterian church. Oh, I know several suburbs where there's a Presbyterian church, a Baptist church, and an Anglican church uh, uh, out at Trigia, for example, uh, out that area. The Presbyterians, the Baptists, and the Anglicans, as far as I can see, the three churches, the ministers that are involved in the teams out there believe exactly the same things. I mean, the differences are so minor, so unimportant to them, that they could happily work together as one church. However for historical reasons, for, for vision reasons, for strategy reasons, they're all working separately. But it hasn't got to do with theology at that point. And they could change church from one to the other and it really wouldn't matter all that much. But, uh, and so sometimes Christians will work differently, work separately, while they're in still fundamental agreement with each other. There was a while here a few years ago on our campus where we had the Navigators, the Student Life, the Evangelical Union and Campus Bible Study, all of whom had the same doctrinal basis. But we worked as four different agencies, different strategies, different methods of operation, different personnel, but in complete agreement with each other, we just wanted to do it differently. That's all right. So theology is not the only reason why you'd be separate. But that kind of difference means that you could come back together some other time, couldn't you? Whereas a theological difference about the nature of the gospel, you can never work with each other until one repents and gets converted. Now we're going to pray and sing, aren't we? Which are we going to do first and how? We're going to pray first. Someone's going to lead us in prayer on these microphones over here. Thank you for listening to the talks on philipjensen.com. Please check our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material on philipjensen.com.